Showcase Sundays today on the Mutual Audio Network. The following audio drama is rated G for general audience. Sonic Speaks. Oh, Scully, you'll have to forgive me. I I don't know how to talk to anyone anymore. Well, let me remind you. It, it is the isolation, you know. It's it's like a black hole sucking you in. Sometimes it wraps its arms around you and holds you perfectly still. The quietness, I mean. The air, the forest, the sea. And that's just a clip from The Road Ends at the Sea, one of my favorite episodes of Nightfall, written by tonight's guest, Tim Wynne-Jones. Mr. Wynne-Jones is a multi-award winning author of both adult, children's, and young adult literature, a composer of music including that of the amazing Fraggle Rock, and a teacher. But it's his work in Nightfall and Vanishing Point that's brought him here to tonight's interview with Sonic Speaks. Please join me right now to listen in on this conversation with me and this prolific, imaginative Canadian author. How did you get involved in Nightfall as a writer? You've written three different scripts for Nightfall. For Nightfall, and then I went on to do the Vanishing Point series because uh, that led one led right into the other. Wow. Um, yeah, no, I loved writing for radio and it kind of petered off the uh you know and of course now it's a whole other world but i think probably the thing i loved most about it was uh, at the time i was writing books I, I was writing um i had written a couple of adult novels and um i was writing some children's material children's books and uh, somebody told me and i loved listening to nightfall i loved listening to radio drama I mentioned it to somebody and said, you know, how can I do this? And they said, well, they put me in touch with the artistic director or whatever he was. It was Urjo Carreda, whose name you might have come across. He had been at the Shaw Festival, and now he was the person sort of finding scripts. Put me in touch with him, and he said to come down and have a chat. So I went down to one of the CBC buildings, downtown Toronto, and we had a chat. He read the ma- – I had a manuscript. He read it while I sat there. Because, of course, it's a radio manuscript. It's a half-hour show. It was 28 pages, something like that. He read it, and he said, yeah, let's do this. <laughs> now, like was that the first one, The Thinking Room? or was That was The Thinking Room, yeah. Excellent. Yeah. Yeah. Great, yeah, he had great some, play. He had some suggestions. Thank you very much. He had some suggestions. Oh, well, he briefly had some suggestions, but then I was passed on to, I think Bill Howell produced that one. He was, I, I believe, was the main producer. But I've never, in no other field of endeavor, was ever anything so easy <laughs> it's just like you know walking in the door and basically going yeah let's go let's go with this so i loved that part of it it was all and it was also quick too i loved the idea that you wrote the play when it was accepted it was a very short period of time before you were in the studio doing it and it was on there it was kind of a lovely experience in that regard that's a real value in radio drama for a couple of reasons number one authors tend to be edited less so people tend to go with the script in front of them where you get into movies and television it could be an entirely different thing by the time it's out the door. oh gosh yeah the other thing for is sure. just how quickly it can be produced because you don't have all the visuals yeah. you don't have costumes and stuff like that so for a writer yeah, yeah. i've always argued it's one of the greatest ways to sort of get your understanding of how to tell a story in a short form. What's it like compared to short stories in that way when it comes to structuring it? 
Because uh, I write a lot of short stories. What's kind of wonderful about it is, is you're taking, it's cut down. You've no room for describing things. The descriptions all just basically come from the people who are the, the actors. And so you create atmosphere with sound rather than by describing anything. So in, um, you know, The Road Ends at the Sea, you've got a foghorn, and that's about, I can't remember the script very well, but I don't think there's any other description of it other than this foghorn and maybe the ocean or something. And so all of that stuff is wonderfully minimal, but it's all you want to do is set a kind of an atmosphere more than actually a landscape per se. And so you would never write a story for radio where the landscape played an important part somehow in the story. You know what I mean? I'm sure you know what I mean. And so that made it a kind of a simple medium. It was really about characters coming face to face, some kind of conflict that can be talked about. I mean, you can always throw in a narrator, an overvoice, but it's best not to have to. I loved writing. It was it was it was quite fun. I'm glad you mentioned The Road Ends at the Sea because that was one of the ones that I was just overtaken with the beauty of the language of what you wrote there. There were some elements oh, that were just beautiful descriptions, just great adjectives mm -hmm. that just drew exactly what you wanted in your mind. No, that's not and that was built into the dialogue. The characters have a little heightened sense of dialogue between them. And like you said, it's, it's struggling to remember. <laughs> but it was interesting too because you were described in Nightfall as a gothic writer and I was mm -hmm. saying when I was listening to both The Road Ends at the Sea and The Strange Odyssey of Lenis Freed that there was real gothic tones in that and I wondered if, if sure. you felt that the Canadian landscape is kind of built for gothic yeah oh, well I, I've always had that I'm drawn towards that I, or at least especially then I think I was more I was drawn towards that I'm increasingly in my novel writing I or at least for a number of years in my novel writing I, I went away from a kind of a gothic structure but I still use the landscape a lot the Canadian landscape the, the landscape I know most familiarly but making it mysterious because I think it is marvelously mysterious in, in some places I do want to tell you something though about the road ends of the sea the taping was fabulously interesting because Barbara Gordon who plays the female lead was very pregnant and she she gets murdered in the play and she and the guy who murders her they put them on the same mic to get the intimacy because they were right and but he in order for them to stand close together he had his arm around her because she she was so pregnant that the only way he could get close so here they were coming to blows and she was i, I can't remember exactly what happened except she was screaming and he was killing her and whatever and but what we're seeing is this couple is of actors you know with, with his arm around her in this very pleasant and sweet way just like wow that's really good acting because the, it was laughable after the fact but they were great they did a great job yes yeah. so they actually let you go into the studio to watch while they were doing yeah. recording can you tell me a little bit of some of yeah. your memories about those yeah i loved that i got to come in for the sit down reading and if i remember correctly it all happened on the same day, we did a, a sit down around the table reading, unless it was two days. I'm, I honestly can't remember. But we'd sit around the table. They would read the parts. I think I think it was a cold reading. I think they hadn't seen it yet. Now, that may be wrong. They may have read it through once. But in any case, we did that and, and I was there I, and the producer or director and then it was into the recording studio and so and I would sit in the booth with the engineer and the producer I remember very much with Bill Lane when he was directing they were doing a scene it was going on tape 
And I just, one of the actors was just not getting it somehow. And I said to Bill, I said to, because they can't hear me, the actors can't hear me. I said, what are we going to do? He's not understanding the script or whatever. And Bill just said very calmly to me, just give him another take. He's just feeling his way through it. And I know he's going to do it. And so the next tape, he just nailed it. And it was like, they didn't need to be told a thing. I mean, it really is fairly, the scripts are quite simple, really. I mean, they're weird and sometimes surreal, but it's a half hour show. It's 20, whatever, 26, 28 minutes, something like that. So there's not a lot of complexity and they just needed to, the actors hadn't really, they had to familiarize themselves almost immediately with the material. So that was wonderful. I loved seeing him so calmly. And so at that point he, he said, yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to talk to him in a minute. So he turns on the dial and, and he said, really good run. And then he made some really small remark like, you know, Jack, I'm just making up a name. Maybe you could just give it a little nudge on this line or something like that. Some really, really small. I'm sitting there going, oh, that's not enough. He needs all sorts of directing. He didn't need any directing. And of course, Bill knew that. And so it was wonderful to see that, to see a director who knows what he's doing really sort of craft the piece as it goes through. No one asked you for your input? No. I mean, I was free to give notes. And certainly, I think in the reading... I can't recall, but I know that I tend not to shut up if I'm given half a chance. So <laughs> I said stuff, but I was also, I was cer- certainly at first, I was very aware of the fact that everybody there was a professional. And I would only say something if it was something that they may not have understood about the passage um, because of the writing, because it wasn't quite there in the writing. I say, well, actually, this is what I meant. Okay, great, thanks. I certainly didn't give notes uh, with regard to any of the actual acting. When I was in the booth with the producer and behind glass, I might say something, one thing or another. And I learned pretty quickly that there wasn't a lot I needed to say. I mean, if we hadn't edited it in the script, then it was really going to be up to the actors and the director to figure it out. Did they end up putting a lot of production notes into your scripts? No, I can't remember anything of the kind. You know, I honestly can't remember anything of that sort. I'm drawing a blank. I don't think they did. Did you have a favorite of your three scripts? I liked them all. Um, I liked the thinking room mostly because of the whole thing that happened. I mean, I just wrote this radio play on spec and they just bought it. It was a sort of a paranoid fantasy, you know, of, of Toronto. But I really did enjoy the production of The Road Ends of the Sea for the reasons I gave. I knew Barbara a little bit. I knew Barbara Gordon just a little bit. I'd met her before. And I really liked the performance and the way they got so intimate in this very dark story. It's fabulous to watch actors find that, you know, right away. And it's just exciting to watch that process. I think I learned over, because as I said, I, I went on and wrote plays for Vanishing Point. And then beyond that, I wrote a series that were on Morningside, trilogy for Morningside called Dust is the Only Secret. And by then I felt I really knew what I was doing. And I loved that little trilogy that I did for Morningside. They played it three mornings in a row. But then that was just about the time that it was back. That would have been in, uh, oh, about 89, 90. By then, it was all going. I mean, there was very little drama left on. Just the occasional show would come along. What shows did you write for Vanishing Point? Bill Lane brought me in right at the beginning because I did all the intros and extras for Vanishing Point, which was really fun. Writing for David Calderisi, who was the voice of Vanishing Point. So I wrote all of his intros and extras. And the thing about that that was wonderful was I got to know David's 
voice, got to know his way he would do it. And I wrote just for him. I wrote knowing that David would enjoy this or that, you know. That's so lovely. The getting the pleasure. cadences of somebody down, right? Yeah. Exactly. That Beautiful. exactly. And so I did every single episode extra and intro. So I did the first show, which was called The Testing of Stanley Tea Garden. And then I did the Enormous Radio, which was based on a John Cheever short story. A really beautiful short story by John Cheever. And so I did that and then St. Anthony's Man, which won uh, an Actra Award for Best Radio Play. Uh, that was in 87. And then my last one of that show was Mr. Grendleton Crashes a Party. And I can't remember that story at all. <laughs> I know I wrote it. Um, I think I have a vague idea what it's about, but no, I can't remember it. And then, yeah, and so we went on from there. But they were, I felt like I was really getting to know the medium and really enjoyed working within the confines. It's such a rigorous medium. It's uh, so circumscribed. You know, there's only so much you can do. And so I really, it was, as I went along, it was really fun to know how I could push the medium as best, you know, in different ways to make it work. It kind of strikes me as almost like those old classic Twilight Zones where you have like a setup and then you have to have yeah. the payoff by the end. So you have yes. only so much yeah. time, like like you said, 20, 23 minutes to be able to do that. So yeah. Did you find the editing process in the writing as you got more into it more difficult or did it still come just as easily? It came more easily because I was actually more used to the just the practical issues of being in the recording studio. And, you know, there's room for subtlety but there's not a lot of room for it you know you can't be so subtle that it goes over somebody's head because you know you, once it's spoken the listener can't hear it again so it's not like in a short story if i'm writing a short story and it's got a twist at the end a, a reader can go well, wait wait what how did this happen and they go and they can flip back and go oh i see this is a you can't do that, obviously, in a radio play. So you have to make sure that you've hit all the buttons and you're not, especially on a show like this, as you say, that kind of Twilight Zone thing, you've got to be very, very clear what is happening so that when you do the twist at the end, the reader goes, hopefully they will be surprised, but they won't be startled in the sense of, what the heck was that? That's not a good ending. I think Hitchcock has this wonderful little video of Alfred Hitchcock talking about the nature of suspense. You can find it on YouTube somewhere. It's a beautiful little piece. He talks about a group of men sitting at a table playing cards and talking about baseball. And it's boring. It's just boring. And then suddenly the table blows up and they're all blown up. He said, you get a moment of shock, but there's no suspense to any of it. He said, so if you're going to get suspense, you have to know, you have to see that bomb under the table right from the beginning, then every word they say, all this boring stuff about baseball, is full of suspense because you're thinking, somebody discover the bomb. And of course, the cardinal rule is that somebody does discover the bomb somehow or other, and they all jump out the window and are saved. But I understand that idea of suspense because I hate it in a movie where you're shocked by something because I don't mind the shock. What I mind is the having no way of, no way at all of knowing that that it was coming. It's so much better if we can anticipate. And so that's what I'm always looking for. That was what I was always looking for in those kind of shows. Yeah. And, and your dialogue, I heard it described to me this way, and you tell me if it fits too. Intriguing, 
but not confusing. The idea well, when you give suggestions in The Road Ends at the Sea that there's a relationship between one of the characters and the woman, mm-hmm. and and it's suggested several times throughout the thing, but it intrigues people to go, well, what happened there, right? That's what I think allows for extra listening, because people are so intrigued by what is not said, but the hints that are left at the story that are unsaid, that adds mm-hmm. for an extra listening in stories for those reasons. I completely agree with that idea. I mean, that you want the intrigue. And the wonderful thing, too, is what the actor brings, of course, is the beats, the little moments, the the hesitations, the curving of a word this way or that way, so that you can read between the lines, I think, in, in more or less uh, is what you're saying. And um, that's the fun part. And actually, as I got more used to the medium, I found I, I would write less, but make sure that I was clear in what I was writing so that there was more room for the actor, not having to hint too much. Let the actor do that with their voice and with their expression and stuff. And you've got a great actor and you don't have to explain most of that to them. They can find those moments in the story. That's right. Yeah. Looking for them. Yeah. So you did a number of vanishing points. You got approached at that point because they were happy with what they did. Were you able to go and sit in on those sessions as well? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I did very, I was very much a part because I was doing the intros and extras. I, I, I had the script of every script that came along. I, I had to read it, which, and get back and, and, and get the thing written quickly, which was fine. I loved that experience. I actually, I'll tell you a wonderful story. I think it's a wonderful story. When we were doing the testing of Stanley Teagarten, which is a first vanishing point. So maybe it's outside of your interest right now. But um, um, the actors were there, but the three, it was a three-hander. The woman of the three was stuck in New York City. She It was a Monday. We were doing a Monday recording. She'd gone for the weekend and missed her plane on Monday morning. And uh, the producer, of course, was livid. I mean, this actress was never going to get work again. I mean, it was pretty serious because... It's the one day of recording, right? And there isn't room. So one of the actors was Tom Hoff, who was a wonderful. He's still he's still acting today, but he uh, he he did a lot of film and TV and theater back in the eighties. His wife was Diana Belshaw, who was also a wonderful actress, and and then became the head of theater at Humber College years later. Bill Lane, I was directing. He he said to Tom when we realized that we didn't have an actress, he said. To Tom, by any chance, is Diana available? Like, could she come down right now? And they they had a small daughter at the time. And so somehow she managed to get the daughter to somebody to look after and come down. She was there within a couple of hours. And she did a fabulous job, like right out of nowhere, just sat down and did it. And the reason I'm mentioning all this is because Tom and Diana have become our best friends. So this is like in 1984 that we did that. And they are to this day, her daughter and my daughter became best friends. So it was the start of a wonderful relationship. And it started right on the set of, well, not set, but right in the studio. It was a very important uh, moment. Um, they were both so good. And of course, because they were husband and wife, their chemistry was fantastic in the scene that worked well. What a wonderful, heartwarming story. I love that. I was thinking of the script, the first script, and I thought, what did you use as a format 
your spec script, the original one, the thinking room? You know, this is a really interesting question because I know I didn't do anything of the kind. I didn't know there was a format, but I must have known something. I just can't think what it was. I, my wife was an actress, and so I knew about scripts, you know, not, not radio scripts per se. I don't think I'd ever seen a radio script, I, and yet that seems seems kind of weird to imagine that I just sat down and wrote a radio script without having even seen what a script looked like. So maybe I had seen one, but I don't know how. It seemed pretty straightforward to me. I mean, the lines of dialogue and whatever little bits of in, stuff you have to put in between. No, I hadn't seen it. To answer your question, honestly, I don't think I'd seen anything. And they were, you know, and then I learned, I guess I just learned quickly about it. What about the sound effects? Were they done live at the time? They actually had a little room off to the side. There was a guy there. It was, it's long enough ago that it was towards the end of this run, I, of the Myra. I think they were using more sounds on, you know, from tape. They'd have libraries of taped sound. And I'm sure eventually you'd have everything you needed. But there was a guy in the booth, in another separate booth, walking a pair of shoes through cornstarch to sound like snow and whatever, and hitting certain kinds of objects and stuff. I think more than anything, what he was doing was incidental sound. Of course, he wouldn't do a foghorn. They'd just find the tape of that somewhere. And I say tape because this was I think pre-digital, like in the early 80s, I'm pretty sure it was pre-digital. It was all tape, but big sounds. And of course, when you're writing a script for radio, especially in those days, I would be thinking of sounds that might be useful apart from what was obvious within the script. Yes, there was a guy there. It was neat. I loved it. The Road That Ends at the Sea, that took place here in, in the East Coast. You were talking about the mud flats. Did you spend yeah. any time out here out east? Oh, oh yeah, yeah. I love, it was, it said, I love the East Coast. I mean, my first novel is set on the south shore of Nova Scotia. Um, it's called Odds End. And I love uh, that part of the world. My son went to King's College, my younger son. So we were out there a lot. But I had been out there when on my, um, we drove, my wife and I drove out and we were stayed on the Bay, on the bay of Fundy, uh, right on the shore of the Bay of Fundy, which is so mysterious. I mean, you mentioned earlier on the potential for Gothic landscape in Canada. Well, the Bay of Fundy is just so, with those huge tides and the mud. And I remember walking out on the mud at one point where we were staying and getting more and more frightened as I got further and further from shore. I mean, the tide wasn't going to come come in right then, but I just, I ended up racing back to shore because I just felt like this is too, too frightening, too weird. And I think actually I did see a road while we were driving along a road and the, there was a road that said, instead of saying no exit, it said the road ends at the sea. And I went, yeah, I like that. <laughs> so I think I actually stole the idea from an actual sign. <laughs> when we talk about Canadian voices and writing as a Canadian, I think that you sort of bumped into one of the main elements is a bunch of people amidst an isolation of wilderness. Oh, yeah, very much so. I mean, uh, uh, several of my books deal very, very prominently with uh, the fact that there's a lot more land than there are people up here. And uh, you can certainly get lost in the United States, but in Canada, it's a lot easier <laughs> to get lost. And uh, one of my most recent books is set in um, the Starlight Claim. It's a novel. Uh, it's set in the uh, Ontario North Forest. It's a sequel to another book I wrote called The Maestro. And again, uh, that forest... Uh, I know that forest well. We have a, a camp up north, north of Sudbury. I love that. That you're really alone there. You can't get a signal, and nowadays you can't get even get a signal on a cell phone or 
anything of the kind. It's you are isolated. And some people are not comfortable with that, but I must admit, I'm really drawn to it. You finally are you and the elements. It's it's great. It's lovely. Is, is that a good place to write? No, I don't ever write there. We have a camp and I go up there and I leave all work behind. I take books to read. I read. There's no other medium of entertainment. Actually, we can get CBC radio. But apart from that, <laughs> apart from that, there's no TV or anything like that. And we wouldn't want it. So I read up there. I fish. But I don't want to work there because work is work. And I, when I go there, I really, really want to relax. It might be a good place to write, but it's not what I need. I mean, I live in the country anyway. I live on 76 acres of land in eastern Ontario. I, so it's quiet here. When I go up there, it's really quiet. <laughs> in your writing, are you in the middle of working on a book right now? I have a book sitting on my editor's desk right now. And I have a book that's just coming out. I mean, it came out in May as an ebook, But because of the pandemic, the actual hard copy is coming out in August with the hope that maybe bookstores will be open. It's a collection of stories called War at the Snow White Motel. And it's a stories for kids. I, I loved writing it. I mean, I've written quite a lot of short stories. And it was, yeah, a pleasure to write. That's wonderful. I was looking through some of your titles, and some of them are delightful nods to literature. The Hunchback of Notre Dame, Dracula, Lord yeah. of the Fries, and other stories, which was great. Yeah. <laughs> Even some of the kinder planets kind of reminded me of C.S. Lewis's Out of the Silent Planet. So I don't want to say... Oh, which I love. What are some of your inspirations? What are some of the writers that you feel got you into writing in the first place? Well, it's odd to look back because the writers that made me really want to be a writer, I don't write anything like, but John the when I was a teenager, I remember going from like reading Hardy Boy books to then reading my father's James Bond books and then suddenly reading The Spy Who Came In From The Cold, which knocked me off my feet at about 17 or 18 years old. I mean, it was like it was, certainly wasn't like a James Bond book, you know, it was so dark and so visceral and so and sad. And I thought, wow, this is something and I've read. started reading Le Carre at that age and then read everything since. Nobody would ever find in my writing, I think, anything that reflects Le Carre, but it was hugely inspirational. Um, and also uh, Graham Greene, the great British novelist. I think the only thing I got, if I got from them, would be that I'm more interested in kind of dark material, but neither of them are even vaguely gothic. I got that from other things. I mean, I read a ton of books, obviously, and um, hundreds and hundreds uh, of thousands of books. And I find that that kind of landscape or, or mindscape of the Gothic really has always drawn me in. But it's hard to say where exactly to pinpoint any particular story. But I loved what you said about... Uh, out of the Silent Planet, because I loved that that trilogy. And I never thought about <laughs> some of the kind of planets having anything to do with that. But in, in some echo in my mind, it probably felt like a good title just for that very reason. You were born in Britain and came to Canada. When did you come to Canada? I came when I was four years old by boat. We moved to Kitimat, British Columbia, which is right up way up the coast. My dad was an engineer and they were building the Alcan aluminum smelter up there. So he went ahead of the family to work on the on the bridge, the building of the dock, I mean. And we all came, my mom and uh, at that time, four siblings. I, another one was born in Canada. 
And we went, you know, <laughs> across the country and then took another boat up the coast. And we were really pioneers at that time. There was no town yet. So we lived in these, you know, box houses. So it was a huge adventure for me. It must have been horrible for my older sisters, but it was pretty exciting for me. I mean, it was the RCMP and a lot of natives. I went hunting with the indigenous people. It was a great experience. Great pleasure. That sounds exciting. Did any of those stories end up in some of your books? Well, in a way, the maestro has a, sets a boy in the wilderness escaping from something. And I think, although it's set firmly in Ontario, I think that pleasure uh, and excitement of the forest and of real danger of real, you know, bears and things like that. I think that got some of that from that. We only lived in Kitimat for about three years until my dad had finished the dock and then we moved to Vancouver and then eventually to Ottawa, etc. Yeah, it was a wonderful childhood to have. I think ultimately the reason we live in the country now is because although I loved a lot about the city, I would rather live, you know, out in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> Entertainment-wise, were your parents readers? Did you get involved in books at that time? Everybody in the house read. I mean, there was no... I don't remember my parents encouraging me to do anything except be quiet, you know. <laughs> so, but it was a given in our house that people read. And everybody made music. Everybody sang. So those things were just part of my life. And of course, when we were up in northern BC, there was no television or anything like that. My mom would get records from the Columbia Record Club. And I loved those records, even though they were mostly they were classical or, you know, middle of the road popular stuff. But I loved them because they were records and they were something to listen to. And there were no other, there was no radio station or anything like that. I've always read. What are your remembrances of listening to radio drama? Was Nightfall one of the first? Oh, well, the thing is, um, no, I, Nightfall certainly wasn't the, the first thing I'd listened to. I had found access to old radio dramas from the 30s and 40s. You know, one starring Humphrey Bogart and Lauren Bacall, for instance. I mean, there was a whole series that starred those Old Venture. <laughs> That's right. right. That's Old it. Yeah. yeah. There were some other ones that just blew my mind. They were very sophisticated. I mean, they were really well done. And The Shadow and all of those shows. I found access to them somehow, and I can't remember how. Um, every now and then, radio, uh, like CBC, would play old dramas. I can't remember the venue but I seem to think that must have happened. And then I met somebody, of course, this was after I'd done these, but I met somebody up here who collected, like you, is a, a huge de devotee. And I borrowed you know, like a hundred tapes from him of old stuff. And oh, it was really inspiring. It, it, there was a golden age of radio drama. And boy, that stuff, it was well done. Really well done. Loved it. Well, you were also saying, though, that you had entertained yourself with music. What instruments do you play? I sing and I write music. I've been in bands for forever. I don't actually play an instrument, but I, I sing. I'm a Welshman, you know. Of course. <laughs> we all sing. <laughs> well, and, and you wrote music for Fraggle Rock, which is beloved by Canadians everywhere. Uh, yeah, that what was, was like that? What was that like? That was thrilling because I got to work with the most wonderfully creative group of people imaginable. Jim Henson being the most obvious of them. And I filled in, Dennis Lee wrote most of the lyrics for the show. And then he got kind of fraggled out at, at one point. He needed a rest. I got to come in and I wrote about, I think I wrote 17 songs for, wow. I don't know how many shows, so five or six shows. It was wonderful. And Henson actually directed the first show that I wrote songs for. So I was in, I got to watch it being filmed and uh, go into the music studio when they were recording the songs. It was just a total treat. Really, I'd had some connection to television scripts that didn't get bought and things like that, but I'd never seen anything like Henson Associates, the way they operate, which was that everybody, 
everybody was considered an absolutely valued part of the creative team. And that meant from the seamstress right on up, you know, like everybody's opinion was worth listening to. And you can tell that the quality, the detail of his shows is because they work as a unit. There was no, no ego going on around there. None. You never saw anybody pulling rank. It was all about getting along and and listening. And it was a treat. I'd have loved to have kept writing for them. But when Dennis got back, he had perfect right to have his job back. And and so that was that. (laughs) But it was really fun. The creative process there sounds like a story right out of Fraggle Rock about getting along together. It just sounds it's perfect for that particular reason. Was it all filmed in Toronto then? Yeah, it was all filmed. Well, of course, the show we saw was all filmed in Toronto. It was filmed in 80 countries. Like, so, the you know, the, the old fellow and the dog at the beginning, that's the Toronto, the North American voice. But it's different, like in... Um, I don't know. I think in Sweden, it was a lighthouse keeper and his pet cat or something. And it's all over the world. So it changes. That opening segment changes wherever you are. And, And it's in places like Pakistan and all over the world. So it's very different, except for the Fraggle Rock part, which is all the same. Yeah. That's amazing. Cool. What a great idea. to. It's such a cool idea. It is. Yeah, what got you involved into writing so much children literature? Because so much of your stuff is children's fiction. Yeah, I, I, it's interesting because I had written, I wrote three adult novels and then I stopped uh, writing for adults. But even after I'd written my first adult novel, my next book was a picture book for, for kids because I'd always liked picture books. I didn't see them in a funny kind of way. I didn't really see them as being... They were just another form, another genre of literature. I didn't see myself as leaving adult literature in order to do this. That did come later. I mean, after I'd written my third novel, my third adult novel was really gothic. It it was very dark and very, by the time it came out, I hated it. (laughs) I mean, it was was like, I've characterized that novel. It's called Fasting Gang, which is an Anglo-Saxon word. And it was changed to voices uh, in England, too, for anyone who's singing in England. Yeah, and and in Spain also, it was changed to voices. I don't know how you say it. But I characterized that novel as being cheaper than four years of therapy, you know, because it took me four years to write. And and I was just obviously going through some, trying to figure something out. And by the time I'd finished that book, I had, I felt like I'd gone through the valley of death. And it was, uh, and I, I can't even look at it anymore. I, I don't even open the pages. That really was the last novel, uh, adult novel I wrote. I mean, I the next thing I wrote was much more. I, I just thought, what do I have to say about being an adult? It's just I really wanted to look at the world of children, and in recent years, nearly all young adults, which is when things seem to matter so much more. Like every, you know, the smallest thing can be a, a life-changing situation for a child and a young adult. And I went over to that side. Although now I'm at a point where I don't know what I'm going to write next. I'm in an in-between moment where I don't know what. I've got two or three ideas, and they tend to be all over the map. So I don't know. <laughs> There's something that I love, and it struck me when I was watching, like, Babe, Pig in the City or something like that. And I was listening to the music, mm-hmm. like, A Kind and Steady Heart, if you remember that song. And I was thinking... Yeah. Why is it that all the hopefulness of the world is left for children's literature and children's music? 
It's almost <laughs> like once we get into an adulthood, any sense of hope is all drained out of the music, right? It's all what I have lost yeah. as opposed to what could be found. And I think that that's one of the really, the great values of writing children's literature is connecting with that sense of optimism, of hope of a better tomorrow. Do you find that's what... Yeah, it's interesting because um, I remember being on... Peter Zosky's radio show, Morningside. I, I was on several times, but there was one time just after the Maestro came out. It won the Governor General's Award back in the 90s. He said, you know, I, you know, I read this book and I don't know why it's called a book for children or for young adults. It's, it's a, it's a, just a, it's a really, he said this, it was very nice of him to say, really good novel. And, um, he said, what is the difference? What, what is the difference between writing for children and writing for it? And it's a question I'd been asked before. On a number of occasions, because I had was in both, you know, worlds at the same time, and I came up with an answer which I've used ever since. I, I said uh, the difference is that when you're writing for children, it's about the protagonist getting a grip, and when you're writing for adults, it's about the protagonist letting go. And I don't know how valid that is. I think it sounds better than it actually <laughs> means, but I think in a way it's true. It's like at the end of a of a kid's novel or a YA novel. No matter how dark or difficult things have been, the kid is finally holding on to something and they are, you leave the book knowing, okay, they've got a grip now and they'll be, they're going to be okay. Life will still be hard maybe, but they know how to do this. And with adult novels, I think it, a lot of it is about letting go. You know, it's, it's over. Forget about that. Move on, you know. So whatever. That's my little. I like that. That's a really interesting thing. I'll have to think about that because there's also a bit of a connection in my head to the sort of Jungian shadow thing. Sure. Yeah. I mean, you're. We're always letting go. I mean, we we want so much. Occasionally, it has occurred to me that I uh, sometimes in in more in darker or more cynical moments, I think, why do we feed children such optimistic literature when life isn't going to be anything like. <laughs> like that. But then, of course, I think you're absolutely right. The answer is simple. You've got to feed them with the idea that things can get done. Things can be accomplished. There is a chance for good to exist in the world. If you don't feed them that, they won't be able to handle how darn complicated it is when they keep running up against evil and disappointment. I mean, how do we get through that stuff? We've all given up a lot of things to get to our age, you know, and yet we hang on to the belief that there's still a good reason to be here. And that we're not done yet. We're not quite done. We're not yet. done yet. Uh -uh. <laughs> and and we're not well, done yet. Well, yeah. we're almost done our hour interview, and I really appreciate that. I was wondering if you had any advice for writers, and specifically for writers in audio drama today. Well, it's interesting you should say because I think the podcast has reinvented radio. Radio suddenly is magnificent again. I mean, there's so much going on out there. It's it's impossible to keep track of all the, the great shows that are happening. Well, I think the wonderful thing about it is, about podcasts, is first of all, they don't have to be a specific length. You can't write a 50-page novel. You can't write a, a TV show that's 17 minutes long. A podcast can be as short or as long as you want. And, and I only say that for a very important reason. If you've got an idea for a, something, an audio presentation, just write what needs to be there. If it's five hours long before you've done, fine. Then it's 
five or 10 the sessions, or if it's 17 minutes long. Or I think that one of the things I had to learn when I was not a, a writer, when I was still a much more in visual art world, was I didn't think I could write a book because I didn't know how to make something last long enough to be a, a, a novel. I did learn that, but the, before I learned how to do that, I had to learn, no, nothing should be in the story that doesn't need to be there. And, and I guess that's the point I'm trying to make in a roundabout way is only the essentials. And that goes for drama or nonfiction um, podcast. It's like just what needs to be there. You don't need to pad. You don't need to ever pad or, you know, waste time or waste anybody's time. Your listener will be with you as long as you're telling them the story. If you start going off on tangents, they'll flip. There's a million things to listen to, right? So you stick with your story and stay on track. So that's just one little thought. <laughs> it reminds me of the line, murder your darlings, right? Sometimes we can get yes, in love with our own language. And I really love oh, the scene. Absolutely. And then you need to cut the whole thing because it doesn't do anything for the plot. As a teacher, what I've often run into is people who know that the passage doesn't work. So they try to fix it by taking out a word here, a word there, or a sentence here, a sentence there. And really, it takes a long time sometimes for somebody like that to realize, no, I meant the whole thing. This whole section takes you know and, and as a writer i still to this day have problem like i still will do that myself i'll write a whole section a whole chapter that, and it could be beautifully written but if it has to go it has to go yeah i usually end up cutting it and putting it in another folder just tricking myself to say i'll use it sometime in the future which i never will yeah but it's a way of you never do how do you like to teach writing how do you get people to be good writers well the thing is i only work with people who are already writing don't think i could could work i, I don't know what level you teach at are you teaching in are you teaching I, I, in high school i teach or, in the high school or, level i teach english in the high school level. Yeah, so i don't yeah. teach writing in creative ways too often. okay um no i i don't know how to work with somebody who isn't already got a huge investment in what they're doing and so i mean at the master's program at, at vermont college where i taught for 16 years i've stopped now but those are all people that have a they've already probably got a book mostly written or they they may even have had books published they just want to up their game so that's just gets into very subtle and nuanced kinds of things with young people when i, I see somebody who really wants to write i just say well just keep writing it, it sounds like and and i make it clear that i'm not just giving them the the brush off I don't think there aren't many prodigies in the world of literature. There are a few. There are a handful. But it's something you can be an 11 year old violinist and play Carnegie Hall. But as a, a writer has to come into writing by writing a lot. The one thing I really think with students who want to become writers is just keep writing. And if, if a story isn't working, if you're writing a story and you've got to like 30 or 50 pages and you're amazed you've written so many pages, but it's not working. There's a point at which stop. Don't write that anymore. Write something else. It's the opposite of what you want to teach with regards to finishing projects and stuff. But you can't force a story to work if it doesn't work. If it's a school assignment and you've got to do it, do it. Whatever. But for your own sake, for the science fiction trilogy you want to write, you start writing that with all. I mean, I've I'm, I'm just met some teenagers recently who two of them were writing big, huge science fiction books, which is quite often the case. Well, one was a fantasy, but same thing. But the only instruction I ever can give them, I feel, is go for it. And then if it stops, don't feel that's the end. That's just like you came to a dead end, put it aside, 
Don't throw it away. Write something different. Every time you write, it's like you have to get your muscle up, that writing muscle, so that when you do get a good idea, you can just go with it. You can run with it because you're so used now to being able to sit down and get the words out on the page. The reason I feel that way is that when I first started trying to write, I would get so, I'd have, a, my head would be bursting with ideas, but I couldn't get them onto the onto the page. I didn't have the words. I didn't have the I didn't have anything, just the idea, and it was frustrating as hell. So the more you write, whether you finish things or not, the better you get, the, the muscle builds, and then when you come up with a really good idea, pow, you can go. Thank you so much for the time, Tim. I really appreciate it. I'm speaking with Tim Wynne-Jones, writer of The Nightfall and author Canadian history, well-credentialed, many different awards. <laughs> I really appreciate the time you take and thank you for getting in touch with me. This has been wonderful. Well, thank you so much and good luck with the series. That's fantastic. Thank you. listening to Sunday Showcase on the Mutual Audio Network, we invite you to continue the amazing audio tomorrow on Mutual with the Monday Matinee. Our weekly series of dramatic, theatrical, classic, eclectic, and live radio dramas. You can subscribe to the full Mutual Audio Network feed every day for the world's largest curated collection of audio drama or find the Monday Matinee feed in your favorite podcast players. See you tomorrow at the Matinee and thanks so much for listening. The Mutual Audio Network. Listening and imagining together.